Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to episode number 115 of the Milestone Pursuit podcast. This is the podcast that brings you a number of things. It brings you conversations with the elites as part of our scheme to invest in underfunded British elite marathon runners. It brings you workouts where I run a session myself, record it. You can download it and run alongside me as if I'm there with you. And it brings you recovery rambles where I run easy around the beautiful and very often soggy Epping Forest and talk about something that's on my mind. And today, on Friday the 27th of April, that's what we've got. We've got a bit of a ramble in the week after the London Marathon, covering all things London Marathon, the magic, but also this year, a tragic London Marathon and I'll come I'll come back to that. So it's going to be a mixed bag, a little bit of a roller coaster, a little bit like the marathon itself, and a little bit like the week after the marathon. You go through those ups and downs, from glory to gloom, as we all do. But hopefully by today we're starting to feel a bit fresher, physically and emotionally. So let's unpick the London Marathon 2023, shall we? Have a little delve into the elites to start with. Why not? Through a puddle. It's warm today. It's been cold all week. It's warm today, but still wet. So the elites, let's start with the men. Kelvin Kipton. Now, he ran 2.01 something or other in Valencia in December and has backed that up in London with a big win. 2.01.25, second fastest time ever. Course record. So here's the, here's, the, here's the thing. You can best describe his approach to the race as legging it. He properly legged it. The 10k from 30k to 40k, he ran in sub 28 minutes. The 5k from 35 to 40k, the one where the wheels normally come off for everybody, he ran that in 14 minutes. Hmm. He certainly did leg it. So he's run two marathons, both 201, both negative splits, both with the second split of half marathon in under 60 minutes. That is nuts. Kelvin Kipton. Extraordinary. The women's race was less about one person at the front legging it and more about 
the consistency amid adversity of Sifan Hassan, the Dutch athlete of Ethiopian origin, who had a little niggle early on, stretched it out, nearly forgot a water bottle at 24 miles, went back for it, and then nailed a track-like finish to reel in the others and win the race. But to be fair, it looked dramatic, it looked like she was finding energy from nowhere, and she probably was, obviously, but she wasn't getting any quicker, her splits were very even. It was more that the others couldn't hold their pace. That's so often true in the marathon, it's about holding on when it gets tough. So the front end of the races were dominated as ever by athletes from East African countries or of East African origin. And a footnote on that is that Bridget Koskai, the world record holder, didn't even make it to the Sun in the Sands roundabout. Didn't even get 1k into the race before she pulled out. A few eyebrows raised at that particular effort. Anyway, moving on. Let's talk about the Brits. And the women's race, it was promised to be a big showdown between the best of British talent. There was going to be some good North American talent in there as well. But injuries put paid to Charlotte Perdue, Jess Piasecki, Ailish McColgan. And that meant that only two British women started the elite race, Samantha Harrison and Alice Wright. And Harrison ran, ran well to run a 2.25.59, having got to halfway in 72 minutes. Shooting for 2.24. And Alice Wright DNF'd got through halfway on 2.27 pace and then DNF'd. So Sam Harrison was the British champion and what that meant was that the silver and bronze medals went to athletes off the mass start, off the championship start. And the reason I say that is because I happened to finish alongside Rachel Hodgkinson, slightly behind to be honest, who, who was the silver medalist. And the reason I, I know that and mention that is because it was funny at the end, she got across the line. Now everyone's doing their finishing rituals, whatever they may be, walking off, and she gets moved off to one side and told she's won the silver medal. And she's like, what? Hey, what, how? Brilliant, good for her. So that's the women on the men's side. Obviously, all eyes were on Mo Farah and his grand finale on the streets of London. His victory lap. And he ran a credible 2.10 and change. Somewhat slower than his best, his own British record. But as we've been saying for a while now, that, that strength in depth was starting to build in the British marathon running scene. 
on both the men's and the women's side. And the strength in depth normally would bring quality of performance as well as everyone's pushing each other on, trying to reach new heights. And so we've been wondering whether this would be the year when someone nudged under 210 on the men's side and put down a performance for the ages. And so it's proved Emil Caress with 208 and I think it was seven seconds just outside getting under 208. He's the 18th British man ever to run under 210 and puts him right up there. I think he puts him third on the all-time rankings. So there was the breakthrough. And Phil Sessman wasn't too far behind either. 220, sorry, 210 and 23 seconds. Out sprinting Mo at the end. And then we had Chris Thompson flying the flag for the oldies with a 211.50, I think it was. I think the age of 42. Fair play. Now there are quite a few other Brits on the start line in the elite race and the vast majority of them went out halfway in 65. So, you know, pushing the pace, trying to get to 210, fair play for giving it a go. And of them, only Luke Caldwell held on for a sub 215 and he ran 213. The others, including Wayne Gebri Selassie, Ben Connor, Ross Braden, Dowie Griffiths, they all finished outside 2.15. Tough days for some of them. So what this means over the longer term, we'll do a little bit more analysis of this and provide some more detail in the newsletter that will come fairly soon-ish, maybe see where we how we're tracking but let's let's move on to talk about my race let's have a bit of self-indulgence a few things on my mind as I strode out for my 11th London marathon now prep hadn't been brilliant I'd suffered a few little illnesses and bugs through training which kept holding me back nothing major at all but just enough to knock me off my patterns, break my rhythm, get in the way, all of that sort of stuff. So I went into the race slightly unsure as to what shape I was truly in. I had a rough idea. It wasn't, certainly wasn't concrete. So I hatched a plan to run to heart rate and test myself based on what I know that I've been able to do in the past from a heart rate perspective what I've been able to sustain. Now the key to that was making sure it's the recent past because as, as I'm aging rapidly the heart rate's dropping. So what I did four or five years ago is now largely meaningless from a, an ongoing management perspective anyway. So I set the plan in different parts of the course. I was going to look to run at different levels of heart rate based on where it was in the course the undulations that there are in London all that sort of stuff and I'll come back to that but the morning of the race was nice 
took my nice leisurely stroll from Greenwich station up the hill to Blackheath Common on the back streets all alone nice and slow having a bit of me time because the London Marathon can be overwhelming kind of with all the crowds getting to the start the crowds at the start the crowds on the course the crowds next to the course the crowds at the end it can all be a bit much so taking a bit of time beforehand for yourself or for myself has become important for me so I chilled out nice little stroll all to myself and then hung about at the beginning waiting for the start started to rain nothing too dramatic not enough to stop Kelly Clark putting on a one of those see-through poncho-y things and stand there laughing at everybody doing running stuff as her way of mentally preparing for the race so we got into the start this is getting this is fascinating isn't it You're loving this a bit of audio we got the start gun goes off off we go slow start nice and relaxed heading out past because guys round about one kilometre in that was one kilometre two and a half laps of the track carried on towards Charlton and Woolwich and here's the first part of the plan so you've got the big downhill down to the Woolwich roundabout down the A205 the south circular down the hill my plan was to let my heart rate drop by five beats per minute hold my pace back let the effort level drop use the hill to conserve energy and that worked out quite well I subsequently looked at it and that was still the fastest mile of my entire race was that downhill so we can let it go a little bit more I think but then on we go towards Cutty Sark at Greenwich and by that point it started to rain and rain properly so it's getting pretty wet like this puddle I'm just about to go through and something curious happened when we were running in the rain off the championship start so experienced athletes good racers in theory but the runners started to operate a bit like car drivers do in the rain they seem to lose their peripheral vision and instead of running the tangents people are all over the place and it's pretty busy so that made it a little tricky all the way through the first half to be honest people not running the tangents and thinking guys it's it's a long way you don't want to make it any harder for yourself I mean yeah the blue line's over there but the blue line at this point is not the fastest route to that corner so anyway managed to navigate all that get to Tower Bridge feeling alright in control against the heart rate plan some occasional support along the way on the on the south side of the river Jeremy Gold in exactly the same traffic island as he was back in October Zach and Sophie Zach Neil and Sophie Allen at Greenwich waving a, a big banner 
as well. Oh, nice. Get to Tower Bridge, the volume of noise goes up over the bridge to the north side. And then on we go to halfway. Halfway for me was 76, 40 something. And bear in mind I wasn't looking at pace at any point. That's all right. Happy with that, roughly where I thought it might be. Not feeling too bad, not feeling amazing, but not feeling too bad. Let's crack on now, let's get to, get the highway out of the way, get down to the Isle of Dogs, get that done through Canary Wharf, and then get to Poplar High Street on the way back, 20 miles. I've been consciously trying to look forward to that section. So this bit was really about getting to 20 miles. So, my good friend Neil, who nearly failed to deliver me my Lucas A Sport, had to almost stop to get it from him. That's a 5 out of 10 handover. I allowed Don Baxter to come past me. Andy Risk had already gone ahead. Clubmates, so they were running well, all good. And then I started to struggle a little bit. And the mud shoot section, just after mile 16, as you head back up to Canary Wharf, a bit of an incline. It's not much fun, that bit. It all starts to get a bit real there, I think. I have to dig in a little bit. So another good friend, Simeon Bennett, he handed me another bottle of Lucasade Sport, much more efficiently than Neil had managed. But it was getting tired. I had to get through Canary Wharf, and that was tricky. I found it really slippy. That was a 90 degree corner through Canary Wharf as you twist one way and then another. So I was pleased to get out of there, down the hill past Billingsgate Market into Poplar and back along the high street running for home now and at this point I found a second wind I saw Neil again he gave me another bottle much better 9 out of 10 handover maybe even 10 out of 10 and on I went trying to chase down the people in front of me and the support from there all the way home was just relentless, it's magical. Both the overall aggregation of all the people, but also individuals who I knew lining the streets, calling my name, giving me a little helping hand along the way. So Zach and Sophie were there again. I saw my friend Bo and her son Reese, who plays in the same football team as my eldest gave me a big smile and a big happy cheer. That was great. Walthamstow Park Run gave me a big cheer. I've never even done Walthamstow Park Run. Joe Singer was sitting on top of a brick wall on her own watching the event. Gave me a great cheer. Kirsty McNamara at mile 23 exactly where she was in October again. Massively loud cheer. Enrique and Stu Holiday. Some very enthusiastic cheering from them as well. And of course, the Victoria Park Harriers cheering spot along the highway. 
high volume, high energy, super motivating. And then as I'm going along the final part of the course, the final stretch, and we're going through the Blackfriars Tunnel and up the other side, slightly up the, up the little bank there, running alongside us at Athlon and Harrier's vest. And he turns and he looks at me and he puts his fist out for a fist pump. No words. So I gave him a little fist pump and off he went. So I saw him afterwards, I gave you a power surge, didn't I? A little power up, a little boost. So yeah, I needed that, that's great. Brilliant, great moment. Loved it. And then as you come out there, you can start to see the London Eye to the left and Big Ben and start ticking it off bridge by bridge, get to Waterloo Bridge. Then the Hungerford Bridge over Charing Cross to Big Ben, turn right, down Birdcage Walk. The thick end of it is done, 600 metres to go. And you turn the top of the corner, wave to the king if you can be bothered or even think about that sort of stuff. People still not running tangents, I guess maybe brains had switched off by this stage. 200 metres to go and maybe my brain had switched off because I put in a little bit of a burst to make sure I got in under 2.35 which I managed relatively comfortably in the end. So, pretty happy with that. And there's loads of people at the finish. In the past when I run those sort of times, it's been single file. This time it was, you know, there's a big mass of people. And subsequently it turned out that I came 271st in the overall race in a time that was 10 seconds faster than I ran in October, which placed me 155th. So I think from that we can read that it was a faster race. The reasons for it, let's speculate. It was pretty good conditions. I, mean, I moaned about the rain, but there was barely any wind. And normally there's a westerly wind that makes the last 10K difficult. And obviously it was cool and the rain kept us cool. Another hypothesis might be the volume of people overall, so 48,000 people finished. So perhaps there's just more, more of everyone. You can speculate also about the shoes and the development of shoe tech, but that is quite a, a dramatic shift. So then of course it's brilliant at the end, everyone congratulating each other lots of appreciation, lots of gratitude, lots of support and then you wind your way through to the end and you've got your bag and stuff and I went and hung out for a bit in the meeting area and horse guards parade, meeting up with lots of people, obviously those who'd run the race, a few others as well and then made my way home safe and sound, back to the family, back to a few clips of me on the telly, that was fun, watching myself lumbering along like a daft old man that I am, 
safe and sound like the other 48,000 finishers back at home revelling in the buzz and the glory 48,000 except for one course here I'm referring to Victoria Park Harriers club member and friend to many Stephen Shanks whose sad passing just hours after finishing the race himself not far behind me came to light early on Monday evening And by that time, Monday evening, I'm starting to feel pretty tired, isn't it? As is very common for many people who run the marathon, it's hard to sleep on the night of the race. Combination of achiness, adrenaline, caffeine probably. Hard to sleep. So Monday towards the end of the day gets tiring. Tuesday, Wednesday, oh, hard work. I received this news, this horrible news, on Monday evening, and it was a it was a proper oof moment, proper kick in the stomach. And to be honest, I've been processing it ever since. Now I've got to be clear here. I didn't know Steve well. There are many others in the club who know him better. And in that sense, it's not my grief to own. It is very much his wife who owns that. In the most unimaginable circumstances. I've been lucky through my life not to have experienced grief at that level and shock. I can't even begin to think what she went through, what she's going through now. So, I, as I say, it's not my grief to own. But grief and shock and sadness, it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't have rules, it doesn't have structure. Especially when emotions are running high. And so there's loads to unpick in this. And I'm going to try and do a little bit of it now. And it mainly centres on how it just doesn't make sense. It's unfathomable how a fit and healthy 45-year-old who's run many marathons before, who's run further distances before, he's run them faster before, how... How we can run an evenly paced two hour 53 marathon. And then hours later, he's gone. Unfathomable. There's also something kind of shuddering about the fact that. He was enjoying 
same experiences that I was as many of us were he's wearing the same vest running the same streets getting the same cheers probably even giving the same thumbs up in return and there were people I know some of those who I've mentioned people I saw on the course who I know well who knew him well and they'd have seen him giving him cheers and that's hard to process isn't it for them so the tragedy that this represents I guess is also a signal is that the right word I don't know what the right word is but it shows you how fragile life is how fragile life can be and it shines a little bit of a light on what we're doing we're not getting any younger continuing to push bodies is it sensible what we do is running marathon sensible is it ill advised is it well advised flogging ourselves time after time or perhaps even once these are questions that run through your mind it's interesting because once the London Marathon had published their statement on Wednesday which made it wide to the world you read, I spent a little bit of time not too long but a little bit of time reading responses on Instagram and Twitter to their post and 99.9% of them are condolences messages of empathy and sympathy particularly towards the family which was actually reassuring there was a couple of posts I noticed which were interesting they said something along the lines of of no consolation I'm sure but he was doing something he loved I'm not sure anyone really loves the Isle of Dogs in the marathon but there's a broader point obviously in there about how we live and how we die and I'm not sure what I think about that I'm not sure what's right do we want to do something that we love so much that it puts our life at danger I don't know I don't know whether I don't know how I feel about that I don't know how I'd feel in if, if it were me and my children were saying that I just don't know how I'd feel about that but then last night this is Thursday 
wife and I went to see Shirley Valentine. The stage show based on the, the famous movie starring Sheridan Smith. In fact, it's only got Sheridan Smith in it. And she delivers, I guess it's about 90 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, with one break. She delivers a monologue, just her. Who'd want to listen to a, a monologue? <laughs> but if you're not aware of that story, of the Shirley Valentine story, it's a 42-year-old woman, woman whose kids have grown up, flown the nest, and she's left at home with her husband who's working, and her life has become soulless miserable and so she searches for for life and in it she talks about this idea of, of the waste of an unused life and given what's happened this week that struck a chord the unused life we live but we don't use it we don't use our time we function, we move from one thing to another, we exist. And death definitely makes us think of lots of things. It makes us think of memories and the impact that people have had on us. But it also makes us think about our own lives. And perhaps what impact we want to have. Or how we want to live. And with Steve, he, he died shortly after experiencing something magic. Because the London Marathon is and remains magic. But without that magic, without that magic experience, would he have died? And perhaps an even better question. is without that magic experience, would he truly have lived? Now we'll never know the answer to the first question. And we'll never be able to ask him the answer to the second question. But we can ask ourselves, We can ask ourselves, how do we want to live? We can ask ourselves, what experiences do we want to enjoy? We can ask ourselves, what risks are we prepared to tolerate as we live? And all of that's individual. Everyone is different. This is not about... We all have to throw everything up in the air, start again live our lives, go and live on a Greek island with Shirley Valentine. It's really about making sure that whatever we choose is an active choice to live, not to coast, to do something and to not live and to not leave your life unlived.
I'm not even sure what that means for me. Time will tell. It usually does. But be active in that. Don't let time just pass. And remember, in all of this, the running is a treat. It is a luxury to be enjoyed. The London Marathon is special. I've run it 11 times. I'm super, super grateful to be in the physical condition to be able to do that. And will be forever grateful for the opportunities that running has provided for me. The opportunities to have experiences like that, to make friends that I do, to have a little fist pump with the South London Harrier up the bank with two miles of the marathon to go. All things I've been really lucky to enjoy and continue to enjoy. So as we come to the finish of this episode of the podcast, the sun is now beating down. It's beautiful through the forest. A mixture of greens as the different trees grow at different rates. Again, set against a nice blue sky. All that's left for me to say is thank you. Thank you for listening to this today. Thank you for the support you've shown me, this podcast, my runs, my running, whatever it is you've supported me with. The messages before, the messages after, they're all important. They all mean a lot. And thanks today for helping me process the events of this week. And of course, we wish Jess and the close friends of Steve all the best as they, as they process this over the coming weeks, months and years. But for me, I'll be back soon. And in the meantime, please take good care of yourself and those around you. Speak to you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.